Welcome to the Psychology of Success. I'm Caden Terry, and each week I help young hustlers actualize their infinite potential by featuring interviews with world-class leaders in business, sports, and health. Now let's get into the Psychology of Success. All right, guys, welcome back to the Psychology of Success podcast. Today we have Cody Aiden on the podcast. Super pumped about today because him and I have a lot of the same values and even uh, a lot of the same insights when it comes to business and entrepreneurship. So Cody is crushing. He's the president of Vibrant Management, a property management company here in St. George, Utah, right? Yep. Yeah. Hospitality management. Uh, we specialize in like boutique hospitality projects and we've grown so much in the last year. I mean, we're all over now. Like we're in Dude. Florida, New Mexico, Arizona, Nevada, or Oregon, Washington state. Of course, a lot in Utah because that's, that's where we live and that's yeah, where yeah. we started. But <clears throat> we're about to sign a property out in Delaware. We have one in Chicago now. So it's like we've really yeah. grown all over the place. Okay, well, I have to dive more into that. And then he's also the author of The Winning the Moment. And that just actually hit a, the bestsellers list. Yeah, just yeah. just off air, dude. It's yeah, so sick. two weeks ago, I finally so became big. a bestseller. That was uh, uh, something that I really aspired to do, and I didn't really know if it was possible. Uh, and it was actually um, Kale Goodman from uh, Real Business Owners that connected me with someone to help me figure out how to do the strategy to execute it. So Good, bro. So big. So he's an author, entrepreneur. I how did we meet? So I went on Cody's podcast. I think I was like the second episode. How did we first? I just did a story on my very first podcast and said, "If you want to be on the podcast, hit me up." And you did. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's that's, totally. That's all. That's all it takes. And as we've been talking, we found out that we have a lot of the same connections, same network. It's so interesting here in San Diego. Well, I think it's a real inspiration what you're doing, and I think that you're creating a space for young people to to get involved and see what's possible. And I, I love it. I think what you're doing is incredible. Your story is excellent. Dude, appreciate it, man. I'm, I'm pumped and diving into yours today too. So let's, let's just start from the beginning, dude. How did you get to where you are today? So I think for me, it started in childhood really, right? So kind of like you, <clears throat> except we're not as advanced, <laughs> but like I always had like the entrepreneurial, entrepreneurial fire. So my first business, uh, I think it was in second grade. It was called the all night midnight bar. Obviously a weird name for a second grader, but I built like a makeshift uh, restaurant in my basement. So I'd sell like sandwiches and sodas and like my old toys to my friends. And then I ended up making a movie theater. I built like tiered seating with like our old furniture in the basement. Started a movie theater to go around the neighborhood. That movie theater was like the next summer. so like third grade. (laughs) And that was back when we had VHSs. You probably are too young for that. And we would like record all the movies on like HBO and Showtime. And then I would just create showtimes for my friends right around the neighborhood, tell them what it was that day and then sell them tickets to come. So really I was just charging my friends to hang out with me, you know? And then in like high school, I would do, you know, everything all the kids do landscaping. I really got into selling Jordans. So I would like buy Jordans online and then resell them to the kids in school or find like a pair that needed to just really be cleaned and like new laces. So I'd get them for super cheap and then, and then resell them to the kids. And so I always kind of just had that drive, the entrepreneurial spirit. Uh-huh. Okay, so you you started, that's so funny because my brother Kyler, he did that for a while. Like I haven't gotten into his shoes as much, but he's done that like all growing up. I don't know if you met Kyler. I haven't yet, but I want to. And shoes are back. Like when I was younger, it was a big thing. And then it kind of went away. And then like, it's totally back again. Like it's wild what uh-huh. some of the shoes go for now. Crazy, dude. Yeah. Okay, so you're young, you're hustling. That's so sick. So you had this little... 
I heard about this little, yeah, your, your hustle where you had your friends come over and you had the little, what was it? The movie it's called theater. the All Night Midnight Bar. Uh, the movie theater, I didn't, I don't think. Dude, what was the bar name? Uh, <laughs> what is that? And then I would also like just take my wagon around. Like I would just go in my pantry, take all the snacks out of it. My dad didn't love that. Let's and go. I would just Great go door profit, to door bro. and just sell them, you know, <laughs> like versus like setting up a stand waiting for the customers to come to me. I was like, well, I'll just go to each door. That didn't make you nervous being that young? No, I didn't. I didn't think anything of it, you know? I really Dude, didn't. That's so funny because we're so similar in that aspect. Yeah. And a lot of people ask me, like, where in the world did that come from? And for you, where did, where did that drive come from? That's a great question. I don't really know. I mean, my parents were teachers when I was younger. And my dad ended up becoming an entrepreneur when I was around, like, fourth grade. So all of this happened really before that. And I think it's just that I knew that I wanted things. And my parents were going to give them to me, right? Like they didn't ever just give me stuff. Uh-huh. So it's like if I wanted something, I just figured out like, well, I have to create a way for me to get the thing I want. And those are the ideas that I had to do that, you know? Just created with yeah, it. Right? Exactly. And so then I, uh, in school, I really struggled at a hard time learning as a kid. Um, going up like through elementary school, I really, really struggled. I was like in the special classes, like where I couldn't read and I didn't understand things. And so I kind of just knew like school wasn't for me. And then as I got older and I figured out people and relationships, I ended up finding success in school because I just really leveraged my relationships. Like if a teacher likes you, they're going to be easier on you. Oh, you know, all it's not even about what you know. It's like who you know and the relationships you build with them. And so once I realized how to leverage relationships and, and, and really moving to Utah helped too because the school system here is not very good. It's like school here was so much easier than Wyoming where I grew up. And then once I graduated high school, I was like, all right, I don't have money to go to college. So I'm either going to get a loan to go to school or I can get a loan to start a business. Okay. And I figured I'd much rather sacrifice and get a business loan than a school loan because the school's never paying me back, you know? And I didn't think I really needed the education to do the things I wanted to do. So instead, I just got a loan for a business. I opened my first business officially uh, when I was 19. It was a cell phone store on the on Bluff Street in the Boulevard. If you're, you may be too young, but there used to be a store called Crazy Bob's on Bluff Street, and I was attached to that building. It's demolished now. Okay. Makes me feel old. (laughs) (laughs) Dude, so you're 19. That is a big jump. I mean, that's where I'm at in my life right now. I'm the same way. Like, I I had the opportunity to go to college, and I was like, man, I just see so many opportunities with business. And yeah, so like, many things I'm learning, I'm like, ah, dude, so I'm just jumping in their business. No, college. I just didn't think I would need it. You know, like I felt like I learned so much more doing it than I would have like reading it out of a book, you know, like getting a QuickBooks, figuring it all out, figuring out inventory, figuring out how to run your finances, how to grow your business, how to get customers. Like there's no better way to learn than, than through application. Uh-huh. And so and what was interesting, obviously in a brand new business, you don't have enough money to support yourself, right? So every every dollar the business made, I had to put back into the business. And at the time, uh, the way that cell phones worked is, it was like you'd get a phone for free, right? So this was like, what year would this have been? 2006, 2007. So you'd get a phone for free for signing up. Well, that phone would cost me like $300. So if you came in, got a phone for free, I'm out $300 because you didn't pay me anything for it. And then I get the commission 60 days after the fact. Right. So that means whatever inventory I had, if I even had 20 phones at $6,000, if I sell all 20, that six grand is gone and not replaced for 60 days. It's scary. Right. So very challenging. So if a family of four came in, there'd be times I'd only have four phones in stock. And so I'd have to sell them like 
this is the phone you really want. Like, you got to get this one. And then dad would be like, I'll take that one too. I'd be like, no, no, no. That is not a phone for you. This is the phone you need, right? Because I knew I only had four phones. They weren't the same ones. And so in order to live, I ended up selling uh, timeshares with Wyndham Vacations. Yeah. So I would go to Chuacon every night, Monday through Saturday. I'd set up a little table with a wheel, like a spin wheel. And I'd have all these boxes of candy on the desk. And so kids would walk up and they'd want the candy, obviously. So I'd be like, yeah, spin to win. I spin as hard as you can, you know? So it takes a while to spin. <laughs> yeah, and while, the while they did that, then I'd try and convince the parents to go to a timeshare presentation. Smart. And everyone I got, I made like 70 bucks. And I would get about three a night. So that's $210 a night. So a little over a thousand bucks a week. And that's how I lived. Huh. That was the money I used to live off of. So all the money in the business could just go back into the business. Okay, that's interesting to point out for our young hustlers. Like it's... So common, often we feel like when we start a business that we should be making profit right away and that we should have something to live on. Right. The reality of it is like it takes time. Dude. Oh, yeah. It takes so much time. And I just knew I, I knew the business wouldn't succeed if I tried to take money out too soon. Mm-hmm. Right. Like I knew all of the money in the business needed to go back to the business. And that was, two, so that was 2008. And so that's when the financial crisis hit, right? The yep. huge financial crisis. And I was really just like in tune. And so the company I did cell phones for is called Goldman, or I'm sorry, Altel. And Goldman and Sachs ended up buying Altel. Goldman and Sachs is not in the cell phone industry. They're in the profitability industry. So I knew there's no way that Goldman bought Altel to operate Altel. They bought Altel to chop it up and sell it off as many profitable pieces as possible. So I listed my business for sale in April of 2008, sold it to an investor. And so I was able to exit and not take a loss. Where had I stayed through to, through 2008, there's no way I would have survived because of the economic crash, like everyone. So my business partner now, Breck, he had a Verizon store at the same time. And so he ended up just having to close in October of 2008 because the economy made it to where he couldn't succeed. So that's when I jumped into the corporate world uh, with wireless, with a company called Wireless Advocate. So they're in all of the Costco's across the United States. And I started managing the location here in St. George. And at my store, I never had employees. Right. I opened it open to close. And so for the young hustlers, I would work open to close every day. And then I would go sell timeshares after. Right. That's still going. That's what it took. And so when I got the job, I know that I got the job as manager because I owned this cell phone store. And so there was a perception of experience. And yes, I knew how to sell and run a business, but I didn't know how to manage. Yeah. Those two things are not the same. So I'd never managed anyone before. And we had a small team because it's a kiosk of four people. And at the time, there were 400 Costco's across the United States. And the one here in St. George ranked 387. Okay. And so I went in and I just like looked at it like a game. And I broke out how we're going to perform in as small of increments as possible. Right. And I would always look at who was ahead of us and show the team. And I also figured out how to make our goal as a company, their goals as an individual. Because they don't give a shit if Wireless Advocates is successful or not. They care about themselves as everyone does, but figure out what they needed, what they wanted and show them the math of like, okay, if you want this new car that costs you X, X equals this many cell phones. So if you're working 20 days a month, then that means you got to sell X amount of cell phones every day at the end of the month so you can get that car. Right. So I made their goals about them, Uh not about what the business needed, the company. And so I was only in that role for 10 months. And in those 10 months, the location of St. George was the number one location in the company. (laughs) <laughs> so that was pretty sweet. Yeah, well, I think the principle right there is you set up, so you saw the huge goal, right? You wanted to be yeah. number one. Yeah. But the way you had your team buy into it, 
you set up small little dominoes. Yeah. Well, first you made it personal. It's like, okay, you want that Corvette? Right. This is exactly what you need to do every day to hit that Corvette and earn the money. Yeah. So you got like the small dominoes every day that they could knock over slowly until they could get bigger and bigger dominoes yeah. to where you became number one. Right. But it's that momentum breaking down the big goal into a small goal and just chipping away at it, dude. It's really it's similar to winning the moment, right? Uh-huh. Same concept. We would just break down our day into two-hour increments. And so it wasn't like we need to sell 10 phones today. It's like we just need to sell two phones in the next two hours. That's a phone an hour. That's easy. Uh-huh. You know, and so we broke it into more digestible goals. And, and then momentum started to work in our favor because once they started to see success and to see their paychecks and to believe, because there was a belief that, you know, as most people believe when they're not succeeding is that it was the location's fault. Right. You don't own it as an individual. Like, well, I'm not performing well. It's like, oh, the St. George Costco is not busy. You know, it never got busier in the 10 months I was there. The traffic was exactly the same. Our behaviors changed. And because our behavior changed, the results followed. And that's what allowed. So then I ended up becoming a district manager with that company. I was the youngest district manager in that company's history. I was only 21 at the time. And most of my peers were like, and you know, 35 to 55 with MBAs, like these really awesome backgrounds. Yeah. So then I got promoted. I moved to Arizona. That's the state that I ran. And now I'm really outside of my skis, right? Because I went from managing no one to four people in a four by four box. Pretty easy to manage that. Oh, totally. To managing, you know, I started with nine locations across the state. So now it's like you, your touch points are very few and far between. And you can't be everywhere at once. And so that definitely had a learning curve when I had to realize how to, how to lead through other people, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so I said, I started that in April of the following year. And I set a goal, like I want to be the best district manager in the company the next year, fourth quarter of that year, I was second. And then ended up being the district manager of the year, the following year for the whole company. So all across the United States. Uh, and then I set a goal to do it again the next year, which no one had ever done because in sales, generally what you do becomes the expectation, right? So I was quote unquote punished. For being so successful because once they saw we could do this then that became the goal that became the expectation totally. so no one usually could could repeat because the bar is set so high but then i was the first district manager um in that company's history to do it again the following year holy crap dude okay so you're just killing it you know this business stuff on business where do you go after this so then i got recruited by a company in utah to fix their wireless company um they're gone now too they're called my bullfrog and my wife and I had wanted to start our family. So we were married at this time. We didn't have any kids. So my wife, Megan, and I wanted to come back to St. George, start our family. So we did that. And then my daughter was born. And I instantly had like a ping of anxiety of like, man, I've got another human like fully reliant on me now. And I no longer believe I can create the best life for that human if I'm working for someone else. Because all of our money is tied to effort right? Like I can't build wealth working from someone else. I can only increase income. So I have nothing to give to them. And my time is tied to my income, right? Directly correlated. So it's like, this isn't going to work. So a friend of mine uh, said, Hey, we can go to BYU and sell the wall street journal. And we might make some good money. We also might never get paid. And I was like, I'll do it. Like I got a kid coming. I got to make some money. So we go to BYU. The promotion at the time was 12 weeks of the wall street journal for $12. So it's 12 bucks. And then we got permission from BYU to license their logo. So we had all these BYU hoodies. So we're in the parking lot of BYU outside of the stadium. And we say, hey, you can get a $60 hoodie for 12 bucks. 
and and you get the Wall Street Journal. So people are like, yeah, of course, <laughs> you know. So we ended up killing it. Good. So then the Wall Street Journal was like, okay, we love what you guys are doing. We're going to give you these other colleges and do basketball. So then we got UNLV. So it's kind of similar to when I did the timeshares. I would work my job as a district manager for this wireless company. And then I would drive to Vegas at night, work the UNLV basketball games for the Wall Street Journal. I get home at like three o'clock in the morning, go back to work the next day. And so we did that for a whole basketball season and we're really successful again. And then my friend and I, Zach, Zach worked for me at the time. I was like, man, if we can get a baseball contract because they have 163 games a year or whatever the number is, mm-hmm. you know, 80 home games, like we could really do something with this. So then we started pursuing contracts. We ended up getting a contract with the Houston Astros. So we went out to Houston and we said, well, let's go to the Houston Chronicle and tell them what we're doing for the Wall Street Journal, see if they want to do it with us. They said yes. And we had four tables at the Houston Astros doing both the Houston Chronicle and the Wall Street Journal. And uh, then we grew it to Dallas, San Antonio, Austin, Phoenix, Denver, Cincinnati, San Diego, LA, Vegas, and Salt Lake. So we grew up all over the United States and got all of these sports contracts. We'd do baseball, basketball, football, collegiate sports, like rodeo, uh-huh. anything. And we would get all of this amazing gear that we would design. So we would design it and then order it from China. So it would be it would cost us almost nothing to get these really awesome items that had the perceived value of oh, totally. 50, 60 dollars. And then we would sign people up for the publications and then we'd get paid a commission for that. And our last year doing that, we paid out over a million dollars in commission to our sales reps. Are you still doing that? Nope. Uh, I left that company when my son was born. Because okay. it was like, all right, it's time to come back home to St. George. So there's really nothing proprietary about it. So I just let my friend Zach keep it. And he ran with it until just barely. He just barely moved back like a, a month or so ago. Okay. So he he squoze everything out of that, that lemon that he could. <laughs> Uh, and then so I came back and I really wasn't sure what I was going to do. So I started a financial practice because I loved money and I loved helping people. And I knew I still wanted to like have my own thing. And then, uh, one of my best friends, Breck asked me to come on and be the CFO for the Cliff Rose, which is uh, an amazing property in Zion National Park. It's a uh, part of the Hilton Curio collection. It's the number one curio in the United States. At the time it wasn't, it was just an independent property, but they'd never had anyone really put a focus on their finances. Uh-huh. So in fact, it's a funny story. The way that he decided he wanted to hire me is I'd rented an office uh, in St. George from him where he had some of his other offices for his other companies. And we had a budget for our family and my wife had gone over her budget by $5. And I was on the phone with her like, Megan, like you can't go over your budget. Like we can't do this. It's like it's $5. Like it doesn't matter. That's why it's a budget. You can't buy it. Like if it's going to put you over, you can't do it. And Breck overheard that. And he was like, man, no one's ever treated our business the way Cody treats his personal life. So he asked me to be a CFO and that's what kind of got me into hospitality. And then as we went on that journey of converting the Cliff Rose to a Hilton, we realized we needed a management company and that's how Vibrant was born. And that's what we've been doing now for the last five years and career from just managing that one property in Zion to now we have over 32 properties all over the United States that we manage. Dude. Wow. So you, so the... Cliff Rose, that's over by like the coffee shop in those areas. Yeah, it's like two hundred. Uh, no, the Cliff Rose is the one right in right in Springdale. It's two hundred yards from the entrance to the park. Okay, yeah, that's amazing. So you guys manage that? Yep. He his family owned it at the time, so his family owned it, and we managed it, and then we converted it to a Hilton Curio uh, because we knew that we'd basically maxed out what that property could earn, 
and it was too risky to turn into a four diamond property without the backing of like one of the big players because we could invest all of this money and then have you know AAA not rate us that and and then basically we're stuck where we were get maxing out our same rates but with all this money so when we started the Cliff Rose was worth I think when we did our loan I want to say it was worth four million dollars when we started and then we went and we got the loan we converted it to the Hilton property and then about two years later they sold it for 23 million dollars and it's only a 56 room property so it was the highest per key sale in Utah history because that's how they measure hotel sales because obviously the bigger the more rooms there are the more it's worth mm-hmm. um, so we've completely shifted the the landscape of hospitality in southern Utah uh, the a La Quinta just sold maybe six months ago for 49 million dollars and they're going to convert it to a luxury Marriott brand that never would have happened without us starting because when we started everyone thought we were crazy they said you shouldn't do it in fact State Bank told us they'd given us a loan and then pulled it and said, we'll only give you the loan if you don't join Hilton. Why? Because they didn't believe in it. No way. Yep. We had all kinds. So we got that phone call. We were flying to China to go get our furniture order started for the Cliff Rose because we didn't have time because the Chinese New Year, usually you'll make a model room at your hotel. Okay. But we didn't have enough time because if we missed the Chinese New Year, it put us back too far because of our season. So we had the warehouse in China build an exact replica of one of our rooms. And we flew to China to get the model room approved. And we had no money at this time, right? We were leveraging everything to get this done. We'd already demolished a building. We'd brought the buildings down to studs. State Bank had given us like the go-ahead and they're going to approve the loan. And so to go to China, you need a Chinese visa. So we had to go to LA first, go to the Chinese consulate, get a Chinese visa. We're driving to the consulate to pick our visas up to leave the next day for China. State Bank calls us and says, we're not giving you the loan. Right as you leave. We're already demolished a building. It's gone. The main building was down to studs. And where was this at? This is at the Cliff Rose in Springfield. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they say they're not going to give us the loan. So Breck's like freaking out. You know, he's like, what are we going to do? Like, do we even get on the plane? And I was like, dude, we got to get on the plane because we, we're going to get it. We're, someone's going to give us the money. Like, I'll build a zip file with all of the documents. Like, 100% of banking institutions going to give us the money. So we got to go. The problem was we had to get a million dollars of furniture made, and typically you pay a deposit on something like that. And so it's like when we meet the furniture, uh, his name's Steve Mittman. He does all the all the furniture for all the uh, temples, uh, Mormon temples, and he does like the win. He does all those high end properties. He used to live in New York. He had moved to China. A really fun older gentleman. And it was like we've got to build enough of a relationship with this guy that four days from now he's going to agree to start a furniture order without any money. And so we ended up making a handshake deal that he would start our million-dollar order on the promise that we'd pay him when we got the loan. Dude. See, that's what fires me off about business, dude. Yeah. I mean, you you had this huge obstacle, and it could have crushed you, right? But instead, oh, yeah, you'd given up. Dude, but instead you used it to grow, and you just yeah. you, you leaned into that pressure, didn't you? You yeah. figured it out. Yeah, so, I mean, you only grow when you're uncomfortable, right? Yeah. Uh, we ended up getting securing a loan with Cash Valley Bank, and they were awesome. Good. Funded it, and then obviously a huge success. Uh, and we were right. You know, we bet on ourselves that we won. So did it did it worry you jumping into the management side of business, like not having that experience? Because you did cell phone stuff, and I'm saying like property management, like boutique management. No, because business principles are pretty much the same, right? It doesn't really matter what vertical you are in. Like success is the, – the behaviors of success are pretty similar no matter what you're doing. Right. Yeah. And so I didn't have any concern about it whatsoever because I feel like whenever I've shifted 
even when I went from cell phones to managing like the the newspaper publication business, right? The principles of how I succeeded were the same in both things. The vertical was just different. Uh-huh. And there was a learning curve because I had to learn hospitality and I had to learn marketing. And so there were a lot of things I didn't know because you can't know things until you do. Uh, but I wasn't afraid of it because anyone can acquire knowledge as long as you put in the time. See, that's what's interesting. Those, I love that you said those. the business principles are the same. Yeah. Right? And you have a book that goes into very, very clear detail of those business principles. Yeah. What have helped you create success, right? And right. I've read parts of it. It's such a good book. So let's dive into that. Your book, Winning the Moment. Yeah. And some of those business principles that have helped you. Yeah, I think with Winning the Moments, I'd always had a dream to write a book because I talked about how I struggled to learn when I was younger. And so when I became like a young adult, like your guys' age, it was like, okay, the only way I can learn things is if I really dive in. And there's no reason for me to try and figure it out on my own when all these amazing people have already done it. Like you just look at the books on this list, Phil Knight, Shoe Dog, David Goggins, uh, Grant Cardone, 10X, Robin Shamara, like all these brilliant people have already done all these brilliant things. Why am I going to try and figure it out on my own? I can just jump into a book, right? Like if you had the opportunity to sit down with Phil Knight, you would never pass it up. Well, reading his book is that opportunity. Like that's like having a four hour conversation with him. So I just jumped into books and really dove in to learn everything. And the first thing I wanted to learn about was money because that's something that like my family never had. And so I didn't have anyone to show me the principles of money, how money really works, how to utilize money uh, in your favor, how, to, how money grows money. Like I didn't know any of that. So that's really where I started. Every book I read was a financial book to begin and so then when, when I got older and I had and I'd done a couple of things, it's like, man, I would love to be for somebody what all these books were for me. So it was always a dream to write a book. And, and that's what brought Winning the Moment together. It started because at the end of 2018, I'd become, oh, I wasn't taking care of myself, right? Because now I had my kids and I was in my career. And so it's like, you just, you can lose track of like taking care of yourself first. So I'd put on weight and I wasn't healthy. I was drinking too much. I wasn't doing all those behaviors that I knew created a successful life. And what I really realized is I couldn't show up for myself because like if you and I were going to go to the gym, let's say you said, Cody, come to the gym with me tomorrow morning at seven. I will 100% be there. But if you text me at six 30 and say, you're not going, neither am I. Mm. Cause I no longer need to be there for you. I only have to be there for me. Accountability. Yeah. Right. And so I was like, okay, how can I change this dynamic to allow myself to show up for myself? Because that, and like professionally, I always showed up. Like if I needed to be somewhere for an event or do something for a company, like I was never going to fall short, right? So I always succeeded professionally, but I kept failing personally. So how can I fix that? So in 2019, I just made a spreadsheet of all the things that were important to me that I knew I needed to do as an individual, Mm -hmm. reading, exercising, eating right, not drinking, all of those things. And it was a simple yes or no. Did I exercise for 45 minutes? I put a Y in a box, it would go green. If I didn't, I put an N, it would go red. And that little reward system worked so well that I lost 40 pounds that year. I read a shit ton of books. I had so much personal growth. And I realized like, there's no point in me showing up for other people if I don't show up for myself first, because I'm not giving them the best version of me, right? It has to start with you. And so in January of that year, so it was 2020 of January, I did a LinkedIn post. It was the only social media I had at the time. Because I was like, man, I figured something out. And so it's like, I want to share this with other professionals who maybe have the same ailment I do, and perhaps I can help them and I'll give them the spreadsheet for free. So I did this post on LinkedIn. I would usually get like maybe five likes or something. It got, um, 
over 2,500 likes, like 500 comments, a quarter, uh, 250,000 views. Like it just blew up. And I made probably over a hundred spreadsheets for people. I just gave it away for free, you know, and it wasn't a business at the time. And that's when I really realized like, damn, there's something here, you know, <laughs> like there's an, there's a need and an audience for this. But then that was 2020. So COVID hit and being in hospitality like that, that really shook our world. Like all of our clients had to let us go. Um, I transitioned to become the executive director of the Utah Tourism Industry Association while still running Vibram because I didn't know if I could ever come back. Right. We worked for all of our clients for free during COVID because they couldn't afford to pay us, but they also couldn't afford to not have us. So we made a, a conscious decision to work for them for free and to, and that they would want us back when it, when the industry came back. Right. And so we also had to make a pivot because we had no income at Vibrant. We still had a, a team and a company. And so that's when we decided, well, let's go outside of our niche and do what we do for all these hospitality companies for other businesses. And we ended up getting a huge branding deal with the Hawaiian skincare line. And when we got that first invoice payment from them, we had $11 and 37 cents in our checking account. And that kept us alive all through COVID that and like all the other government funds and everything. And so the, the reason I share that part of the story is I allowed myself to become a victim and I stopped doing all those things that were making all those positive changes. Right. Cause it was just, I played the victim card, the poor me. So I was like, all right, my spreadsheet's not working for me anymore because it's not with me enough. It's not visual. And I was thinking about psychology. I was reading a bunch of books at the time about willpower. And I learned that as a human, like our willpower dissipates throughout the day. So it's like, why am Mark Zuckerberg wears the same outfit every day? Because it's one less decision he has to make. So they say like, don't put a bowl of M&Ms on your desk if you don't want to eat them. Because even if you don't eat them, you're consciously deciding not to throughout the day. And, and you're lowering your, your ability to make future decisions. And so I was like, okay, how can I put value on the little things that I, that I convince myself don't matter, right? Like if I have a whiskey tonight, is that going to change my life? The answer is no. However, if I have a whiskey every night, at some point it is going to start to negatively impact my life. And so how can I decide to put more value on those little things, right? And that's where the bracelets came in into mine. And I was like, man, I don't have to like be perfect forever. I just have to be perfect in this one little moment, this 10 second moment of making a decision. If I can make a good one and not a bad one, and I stack those on top of each other, then I'm going to be very successful. Mm. But it also gives me the grace to like make a bad decision occasionally because we are in pursuit of perfection. We're in pursuit of progress, right? And I think the problem for me is like if I did a 75 hard and got sick, then I would just quit altogether instead of like starting over. Like anytime I did anything, if I failed once, then I was like, well, it's over. Like I want to go to the gym for a month. I missed one day. It's like, wow, whatever. I guess I won't go anymore. I already blew it. So I needed to figure out a different system for me where it wasn't about like this long-term thing. It was just about making little good decisions. And then in, through writing my book and doing research for it, I found out there's a term called the winner effect. And so it's actually a proven science that when we win, the chemistry in our brain changes. So we get a hit of dopamine and testosterone and it creates a confidence and a belief in ourselves that we'll win again. So when you look at like people who are wildly successful, it's like, man, this person is just always winning or always succeeding. It's because the winner effect of act is actively engaged in their mind. So they believe they're going to be more successful and, and everything in our life starts with what we think. And so once you can change the way that you think, you can change the way that you can perform. And so it's really combining all of these different tools together into one 
really simple concept of just try and make 10 good decisions a day. And, mm -hmm. and if you can do that, you can win the day. And if you can win the day, you can win the week. If you win the week, you can win the month. If you can win the month, you can win the year, you know? And so that's ultimately kind of the premise of, of the book. Mm. Dude, I love that. Cause that, that's something I talk about a lot as well with the podcast, right? The whole theme of it is, well, it's right behind you. Visualize, optimize, actualize, right? First, yeah. we want to visualize who we want to become. We optimize ourselves. We do the little things every single day, like you're talking about moment to moment to moment. And then we actualize our infinite potential that we have inside, right? Yeah. But it, it takes time. It doesn't, it's, it, we don't need to be perfect at all. No. It's just the progress that I just love, dude. And well, it's lining up those dominoes and knocking them over. I think you can be cautious too, especially for like the young hustlers are trying to influence that this isn't to say like always be grinding or like you have to get up at five o'clock in the morning. You have to do an ice bath. You've got to run 10 miles. Like the most important concept I want people to know from the book is it's not about society's definition of success. It's about yours. Right. It's like maybe there's someone out there who really wants to grind, but they're going through depression and they just can't get out of bed. Well, if every day they get out of bed at 11, but today they get out of bed at 10, that is a win. Cool. Right. You don't have to get up at five o'clock in the morning to be a winner. Like you just have to decide what you want for yourself and what does your optimal day, what does your optimal performance look like? And for every single person, that's different because we're all in different parts of our journey. And so I don't say do this, do that because I don't want people to get stuck in like what I believe success is. I want you to define success for yourself and then use these as tools to get there. Yeah. Isn't that interesting how we tend to compare ourselves to other people yeah. and what they're doing and how they define success when really we all have our own journey. Absolutely. We're all at different points. It doesn't matter. We all, so I, I guess along those lines, like how do you define success? Freedom, right? Because freedom for me is the ultimate because if I have freedom, then I get to decide what my day looks like. I've got like, you asked what my time's like today. I'm coaching my son's football team at 515 and we had practice last night. I want the freedom to be able to do those things. So I want to create a life and an atmosphere that allows me to do the things I want to do when I want to do them. Mm. And if I have freedom, then I feel like I'm successful. There's not a dollar amount tied to that, right? Because it's all relevant onto what I spend. So like when I was younger, I thought like I got to make X. It was always about, first it was about six figures. And then it was about like, I got to make 250. And there was all these dollar amounts tied to it. But I realized how short-sighted that is because if your income increases and your expenses increase, then there is like, you're not creating a gap of freedom. It's all just growing together, you know? And I, and I had some people who made some friends of mine who made some really large amounts of money and they were miserable. Right. And it's like, okay, so money doesn't equal happiness. And so what's the equation for me? And that equation is freedom, you know, which means I could sell my house and just live in a van with my family and we'd be free. And that to me would be successful. And so because I had that negative relationship with money as a younger kid, it was, it took me so long to untether my belief of success from, from anything monetary. Huh. Cause that's an, that's an easy pattern. I feel like for the younger generation to fall into as well. Yeah. Correlating success with having materialistic things. hundred. I mean, there's nothing wrong with it, but it's when you're connected with that. Yeah. And you're trying to find fulfillment in those things. It's empty. Well, I say in my book, you know, don't get caught in I'll be happy when moments. Because the problem with the power of the mind is like, if you say, I'll be happy when I make six figures, right? What you're telling yourself is one, you can't be happy now because your happiness is predicated on a future, a future destination. And so like your mind will then internalize that and say to yourself, oh, no, 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 you can't be happy. You're not here yet. You know, but tomorrow is not guaranteed. So you've got to find happiness now. And what's really scary is that you can get to that six figure thing 
and believe that that's where your happiness lies, get there and still be unhappy, and then what? Then that's when real depression kicks in, right? Because now you thought this, that, or the other thing was going to make you happy. You get that thing. Uh -huh. You're still unhappy, and now you're kind of like, oh, shit. You know, what is it? I've been pursuing this for so long. I delayed my happiness for all these years. Now I have it, and I'm still unhappy. What do you do now? So you've got to find a way to create happiness in the moment because the only thing that's real is right now. Hmm. That's a pattern I've seen as well. Uh, I've had a lot of people ask me, it's like, how do I find purpose in life? Like, how do I find fulfillment? And for you, like, what have you done to find that? Because it's not materialistic things. You it's, found it's empty, but yeah, and it's find? such a hard, it's such a hard thing to do. And that's that's another part of the book is is find your why. I think it's like chapter like eight or nine, because nothing matters if you don't have a purpose, right? Like, it's easier to pursue things when there's a purpose attached to it. And the hard thing is, like, our initial answers are always going to be surface level and like what society says, like, oh, I just I need a house or I need a wife and I need kids. And then I need this, I need to retire, I need all of these things, but that's all just surface level. So you've really got to dive deep and, and, and I think also give yourself grace to know that your purpose today as a 19 year old will not be your purpose as a 29 year old, like whatever you decide your purpose is today, you have the luxury and the freedom to evolve. Mm -hmm. So I think too often we get stuck thinking like once we decide we're going after this thing, that we have to keep pursuing it. But if you have new information, it's okay to change your mind or to say, you know what? That's actually not what I want. I want something over here now. And so I think be open and in tune to allow yourself to to shift and to move and to know it's always going to be different. Mm. I fall into the trap oftentimes to where I feel like I need to be like so focused and so dialed to where if I see other opportunities and I do want to pivot, I'm like, ah, should I pivot? Should I keep going towards this opportunity or I chase this other thing? Because at times, I, I, I'm sure a lot of the listeners feel the same way. It's like, maybe not at first, but once you get into business, dude, there's just so many opportunities that yeah. I want to just go after and just crush it. It's like I'm chasing 20 rabbits and not catching any. It's kind of like right? fear of missing out too, right? Because yeah. you're doing whatever you're doing. It's been blasters and it's yeah. like, oh, I'm, I'm developing this community. And you're like, ooh, like, I want to do that, right? And so that's why you need to have that ooh. purpose so you don't veer off track so frequently. Right. Because you don't want to just be constantly chasing. You want to have somewhere that you're going for. Uh, not to say again that you can't change your mind, but you don't want to be changing your mind every 30 days. You know, like your purpose should stick for you for a little bit. Yeah. And I think the hard thing, especially as a young entrepreneur, is when there's an opportunity to have income, you always feel like you want to grab it. And we made that mistake with our company in the beginning is we didn't really establish who or what we were. So it's like if someone was like, hey, here's some money, we'd be like, yeah, we'll do the yeah. thing for the money. Uh, and then we realized that we really got to define our niche. And I my business coach has a saying, like, stick to your niche and you'll be rich, right? Like you're better to focus on the thing you're really good at and become great at that because it takes so much time. So it's like, it's that slow burn of you think like, man, I've been doing this for a year. My buddy over here is already making this much money. I should just shift. But I then you're that, bro. then you're back at the beginning. Right. And so then you're starting all over again. And even for me, I would have made more money had I not jumped around. I don't know that I would have been more fulfilled or happier, but certainly if I was in pursuit of money, I would have been better off just sticking with wireless because once I left wireless and started over at, um, the marketing company, I was back to the day one, like I was new. Then I grew a really successful company, came as part of financial practice. I was back at the beginning, left, did hospitality, I was back at the beginning. And I'm not saying it's right or wrong, but if you're in pursuit of money, stick to the thing that you want. Mm. But I wasn't in that pursuit. I was in pursuit of freedom. Yeah. 
So it gave me the privilege. To that was your purpose, dude. You're, yeah. that's, that's what you're chasing. Yeah, I mean, so I did a lot of things. It's like when we moved to Utah, the house we bought, we bought it for $98,000, 983 square feet. And when we moved to Houston, we just rented it because we, we were like, you can't lose that house, you know? So when we came back to St. George, we lived in that with our, my, me and my wife, our two kids and our two dogs in the 983 square foot house. That's this size, dude. We're in the tiny home right now filming yeah. 990 square feet. Imagine yeah. living here with a wife, two kids, and two dogs, <laughs> right? Um, but my mortgage was $600 a month. And what I wanted was freedom, and it, that gave me that freedom. It gave me the ability to start over and build a new business because I didn't have, I didn't have any debt. I didn't have a car payments, right? So I had, I had no car payments. My mortgage was $600. I had the luxury of building something. Had I not done that, I wouldn't have had the freedom to start Vibrant because I couldn't have afforded to start from the beginning. Mm. So that's really what moving to Houston was all about. It was let me go maximize my income as much as possible, as quick as possible, so I can create a life that I can build in St. George where I can have freedom mm. to build the life that I want. But it took a lot of sacrifice. Like when we started our marketing company, that first baseball season, I think I only didn't work like four days over six months. And I was traveling all over. I would, I would work a week in Houston. They'd have a seven game stretch. It would end on a Sunday. I'd go to the airport, fly to Denver, start the Rockies 10 day stretch. And then on a Sunday, fly to Cincinnati. I go work their stretch, you know? So it took a lot of work and a lot of grinding. But my purpose was at that time, like we are just going to get ourselves in a position where we have the luxury to build something mm. new in St. George where we ultimately want to live. And that's where all my hustlers are at right now. We're at that point in life to where if we can live below our means and yeah. build and build and build and build, we're going to open up a lot of freedom later on. But it's hard to stay motivated. Yes, it is hard. Well, and the thing is the reward is so long, right? Because the, your best currency is time. And so you've just got to keep riding that because you're not going to see the gain, but then it's going to be like this at the end. You know, like if you can keep living below your means and keep stretching out that time, then the larger your return is going to be. Mm. So good, man. So you and I, we have a lot of the same ideas when it comes to morning routines, bro. It's so funny. Cause we, so Cody interviewed me on his podcast, like two months ago and we got talking about morning routines. I was like, yeah, I have this, this saying, or basically like a motto that I live by win the morning, win the day. Yeah. And it's so funny. Cause that's one of your chapters. Uh, yeah. Look, win the morning. Dude. Yeah, yeah. So let's, let's talk about it. So I think that for me, what's interesting is I, my battle really starts at nighttime okay. because that's when I make all my bad decisions. Totally. Like winning the moment was born through necessity of having to figure out how to fix my night. Yeah. Because what happens is I work all day. I make good decisions throughout the day all the time, you know, put my kids to bed, have dinner. Now it's nine o'clock. My kids are asleep. My wife's asleep. I got no one to show up for. And you know, I'm not great at showing up for myself. So then it's like, all right, you know, maybe it's a long day. I'll talk myself into why I deserve a whiskey. One whiskey equals two whiskeys. Two whiskeys equals a sandwich. A sandwich equals chips and salsa and, and a Netflix bench, right? So now I'm asleep at one o'clock in the morning. I will not win the morning. There's no way. I'll be too tired. Even if I tried to do it, I would do it unsuccessfully because I'd be lethargic and out of it. So I realized, like, man, I have to win my evenings to give me the opportunity to win the mornings. Yeah. So for me, it's like, it's so critically important that I do the things I know I need to do at nighttime because if I do those things, I'm always able to win the morning. And then if I do win the morning, it sets, it just creates a cycle, oh, you know, because if I get to work and I've already had this really successful morning, then my day is already set up to succeed. I've got that winter effect already brewing of that positive momentum. 
And momentum works in whatever way you're going, whatever direction, right? So if you're going in a really good, positive forward direction, momentum will work with you in that way. But if you're going in the wrong way, momentum doesn't doesn't care which direction you're going. It's just going to go. So mm-hmm. that's why it's so important to, you know, Jim Collins says it in his book, Good to Great, that wheel, you've got to get that flywheel going in the right direction. Uh-huh. For me, so it's so similar. I call it my AM and PM bookends, right? Yeah. So my AM bookend, I can completely control. It's my routine. I literally in my calendar, it's funny. My friend was joking about this yesterday. She saw me put it in my, when I was planning for the morning. Yeah. And all I put was just win. It was for a solid hour. Yeah. From like six to seven before yeah. the gym. And that's, that's my routine that I go through. So I, I can completely control that because once nine or 10 hits and I'm into my work mode, everything is just, I'm just putting out fires and solving problems. Yeah. You're just going through day. But yeah. But I can control the AM then also the PM, right? Once yeah. I'm done with work, maybe like from seven on. Yeah. But I realize that if I don't maximize that PM bookend, and if I'm kind of lethargic with it, yeah, I it screws up my morning. Just Absolutely. like you're saying. Absolutely. So literally, winning the morning starts with winning the night. Yep. Just 100%. like it's the, the same principle, dude. So interesting. So winning the moments about making those ten good decisions, right? It's got five bracelets on each side. Almost always, my first five wins come in in the morning before I go to work. And almost always my last five wins are the end of the day because I don't really need extra motivation at work because I've already built those, 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 that muscle memory, right? And like at work, I'm consistently always making good decisions. It's outside of work when it's just about me that I struggle. Yes. And I'm not saying that's the solution for everyone, but for me, almost all of my momentum shifting decisions happen before work and after work. So what are those wins for you? Because and tell me the story with the braces. See, let's dive into so this. You got the, the idea here is that spreadsheet, how can I bring that to life? Right. And so there's there's a lot of science already behind this. Like some people will like snap a bracelet or like a ba- a rubber band if they if they make a bad decision. The way that I got the idea is from his name escapes me, but he wrote a Will Bowen. He's the author of a complaint for your world and he was a preacher and he realized his congregation was like always complaining. So he made these purple bracelets and he said, every time you complain, I want you to move it from one wrist to the other to like bring yourself present and realize like, oh shit, I'm doing it again, you know? And I was, I had, I had him come speak at a conference I put together and I thought, huh, that could totally work for my idea. And so that's really what spurred the idea. And so what happens is every time you make a good decision, you move the bracelet because oftentimes what we're trying to do when we make a bad decision is get dopamine. Like when you grab your phone and scroll on Instagram, you're doing it because you want the dopamine of that Instagram. Or if you grab a Dr. Pepper, you're doing that because you want the dopamine of the Dr. Pepper. You know full well that Dr. Pepper is not good for you, mm-hmm. but you want the dopamine. It's exactly. And so the idea is instead of having that Dr. Pepper, I would move a bracelet from that wrist to this wrist because then I'm going to get that sense of dopamine because I'm going to get that sense of success. And now I'm not going to put that bad thing in my body. Huh. Right. And then now, in fact, there's a great story. I was like, it was like nine o'clock at night. I had like three bracelets left on my wrist. My wife was going to bed and she was like, are you going to go to bed? I was like, I think I'm going to have a drink and watch a show. And she goes, well, are you going to win the day? And I was like, damn, it's just so right. <laughs> Cause I had three bracelets left. So I was like, okay, I could go read right now. I could be in bed before 10 and I could write my journal. Boom. Three good tasks. Now I've won the day. And so that shifted my decision. Because it's like I had another, I was gamifying my life, right? Game, I'm playing yes. a game with myself yes. of like, can I win or not? And and most of this, like so much of my success in my pro- professional life 
came from the principles I learned in sports as a kid. And I love games. Like anytime it's a game, it's more fun. The success had at Wireless Advocates, Ruby became the number one location in the United States. That was all a game. Mm -hmm. It was all numbers and games, right? And so I succeed better when there's a game and there's a winning, a win and a loss associated with it. That may not work for everyone, but for me, when I know I have a chance to win, I'm more likely to do that. Mm -hmm. And people know you're playing that game and hold you yeah. accountable to it. Well, and that's part of it too, right? So you can create a community of people around you who, once you're participating in it actively and visually, where they will hold you accountable. It's like at the office, if I go in and like, I want to grab a Snickers, they'll be like, oh, Cody, you going to win the moment? Like It becomes a joke, but it does work because you can look at my wrists and see, am I showing up for myself or not? So each one of those bracelets, so for the listeners that don't know, he's got, what, 10 on? 10, yeah. So do each one of them symbolize a certain task or a habit? Or is it just not predetermined? It's just when you're at that moment of that precipice of like, so maybe I'm at work and I'm feeling like lazy and lethargic and I want to grab my phone and scroll Instagram. It's like, no, no, I'm not going to do that. Instead, I'm going to work for one hour and I'm going to focus. I'm going to move the bracelet. Or I go into the break room and I, and I feel like I need something. I look at a Snickers and I say, no, I'm not going to have that Snickers. I'm just going to fill my cup up with water. I'll move a bracelet. Or it could be like, I, I have a hard time getting up on my first alarm. So if I do that, if my alarm goes off and I wake up, boom, first one of the day done. And then it's like, all right, now I'm doing my meditation. Boom, second one of the day done. So then I'm just stacking the success on top. But I never know what it's going to be. It's like it's predetermined. Okay. It's just there in the moment when you make that good. It's like I could move one after this podcast. Like I took the time out of my day to do something that matters to me. Uh huh. I just won that moment. I love that, that concept of the winner effect and you're yeah. creating that right and you're gamifying it yeah so i do something similar it's it's called the heroic app it's like this app and they have a bunch of just different uh book summaries and like just short clips about self-development okay but they also have you put in your habits and what you do you literally there's different targets and you yeah. swipe the targets as you hit them and it like does this little like little yeah. celebration giving you dopamine it's the same dopamine. celebration of giving and dopamine. He, he talks about the science behind that yeah how like when we can gamify our life and when we can have that trigger to where we we swipe target swipe dude or you move the brace that have some kind of yeah. activity that helps ingrain into our brain we like to think we're so evolved but we're still prehistoric creatures like our brains haven't changed that much so just the same way you would train a dog to do the things you want a dog to do, it works and works with us. You know what I mean? Yeah. We're not that sophisticated and it doesn't take a lot to shift our behaviors and to get us moving in the right direction. But everything that you just shared is the exact same concept. And even like Atomic Habits will talk about James mm -hmm. Clear, very similar concept. He talks about the guy who needed to go to the gym. So it's like the first thing he did is he just went to the gym and put his gym clothes on. Then he would change and leave. Then he would go and do it again. And eventually it's like, well, I'm at the gym with my clothes on. I might as well like go on the treadmill for 10 minutes. And before you know it, 30 days later, you're working out for an hour every day. You know, mm -hmm. it's just shifting those behaviors and creating. I think that, you know, life has so much to offer. And oftentimes people make it more difficult than it needs to be. And it's like, we only get this one life as far as I know. And let's make sure we enjoy it and let them be present because you don't want to spend so much time living in the past, worrying about like past mistakes or things you could have done differently. We're so focused on the future where ambition lives. I'm going to do this. And I'm going to do that. And I'm going to do these things. Well, none of those things are real because you're not actually doing them now. So the only thing that matters, the only thing that's real is right now. And I find these bracelets help you bring you present because so often you could get home and your buddies or your wife, your spouse says, how's your day? And you're like, that's good. But you really don't acknowledge or realize 
what made your day good because we live most of our life on autopilot. Our subconscious drives almost everything that we do. So it's very difficult to be consciously involved in your own life. And I think that these help me do that. Mm. And I think it's so important to be present. Yeah, it helps you pause and to really be present. Yeah. So true. Yeah. So we get so caught up in the day-to-day. Yeah. Well, it's we all, like you said, yeah. put out fires. Yeah. I'm just doing this, you know? And then so you get home and it's like you don't even, like you don't even really appreciate what you did. And so you may feel like, man, I haven't done anything worthwhile in a, a minute. Mm. But if you actually looked back, you'd be like, oh, wait, no, I, I did this and I did that and I had my event. There's so much that we do, but we have to make sure that we're aware of it so we feel like we're progressing. Ah. So good, man. So before we wrap up with the last two questions, um, how, how can my listeners serve and support you and what you got going on? I mean, the best thing they can do is buy, buy the book. It's on Amazon or anywhere books are sold, right? Um, and certainly like, like, and subscribe to my podcast. I'm just getting started and got 54 subscribers. Yeah. Check out my episode. I was episode number two. That's right. So I'm on my way. So I think that's the easy, that doesn't, that doesn't cost any money, you know, going to YouTube and just like, and subscribe. And that, that would help out. Winning the moment is the name of the podcast. Okay. So I I do a, you do, I do a video of every episode and then it's also anywhere that you listen to your podcast, you know, Apple, Spotify, anywhere that you listen. Okay. And we'll link it. What's your Instagram? Uh, Cody underscore Aiden. Most of my socials are either Cody underscore Aiden or Cody Aiden. And if you just Google Cody Aiden, it'll pull up all kinds of stuff. Okay. There we go. Perfect. So here's the the last two questions. So I want you to imagine that, uh, you can prescribe anything to the entire world. You're going to love this question. It's my favorite. You prescribe anything to the entire world and they have to do it for 30 days. What do you tell them to do? My funny answer is to win the moment. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. There we go. Podcast ended, bro. Wrap it up. Focus on your 10 wins throughout the day. Uh, but if I wasn't going to shamelessly plug myself, I would probably say the best activity that they could do for 30 days is to be actively present in your life every single day. What does that look like? Not allowing yourself to get stuck. Again, living in the past, focus on the future, not getting stuck in scrolldom because you're not living your life when you're scrolling. You're, you're looking at other people's lives, yeah. not uh, wasting time. Like if you were watching a bunch of junk TV, that's not being present in your life. That's being present in someone else's life, you know? So find the things that matter to you and be present in those activities. So good. So good. Okay. So this, this question is pretty deep. So I want you to imagine Cody that you've achieved everything you've ever wanted in your life, right? You have the freedom that you are getting after, um, financially with time, everything, dude, you've written, when your book, it's already a bestseller, but I don't know, it's, <laughs> it's, it's crushing it even more. You've sold millions of copies. Okay. You've achieved everything you could have ever wanted in life. And you're on your deathbed, but every before you die, everything is going to be erased about you. The world will completely forget about you besides two things. These things are called the two truths. These are things that you know to be true because you lived them and felt them and you've experienced them. Yeah. So what would those two truths be for you? I think the first truth would be that I was uh, a present father and husband, right? So family would be number one. And number two would be that I, I genuinely cared about other people and their success. Mm. Incredible, man. So good. I appreciate your time today. Um, it's been awesome hashing it out, man. So guys, go check out his book. 
I have a copy. I've been reading it. It's legit. We'll post about it on social media. And I'm Caden Terry, and this has been The Psychology of Success.